1975, Christmas Eve. Tommy Ziegler is just kind of your average guy. It pretty much untangles the lives of half of this small town in Florida. Four people ended up dead in a furniture store with the lights off at different times during the evening. Tommy Ziegler is rushed off to the hospital, went in for emergency surgery, and later is booked for murder. Your heart kind of swings, you know, from one end to the other. You know, he did it, he didn't do it. It's been like going to a time portal every time. I go back into the original documents or speak to someone who was there. Well, my mindset when we started the trial is we think we have a decent chance of winning this trial. We thought and still believe we have an innocent client. There's no one man can shoot eight guns in four seconds to expend in 30 shells or whatever. I don't care who he is. Once, as an investigator, you prove to yourself that this man is literally being crucified by the state, it ruins your own life. I mean, I've served in the service. I've served in Vietnam. I've represented a lot of people, done a lot of things. It has been, that was probably the worst moment of my life, is standing beside Tommy Ziegler, believing in my heart that he was innocent, and have the judge sentence him to die. I don't want to be let go. I want that new trial. I want those 12 members of that jury to stand up and say not guilty. On May 4th, six weeks into the quarter, the third and final group of students board a plane and do their best to arrive in Winter Garden, 1975. Will, Kayla, and Sen meet with one of the first police officers to arrive at the gruesome crime scene and the man who was brought in to identify the bodies. Hi, Alec. Um, it's Sen, and we are here on the front porch with Jimmy on. Hi, uh, Mr. Yon. How are you? Fine, and you? Good, good. Uh, we really appreciate your taking the time out for this. Sorry you're not down here. We have good I know, weather. Uh, uh, me too, but you're, you're in good hands with, uh, with the students. Yeah, I told them that, uh, you know, there were no need to have you on the phone. I just wanted you available in case they had a question that they could contact you and, you know, your time oh. time would be available. But if you want to listen to the whole thing, that's fine, too. No, 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 that's fine. I'm, I'm if you, if you know, uh, Sen, uh, Will and Kayla, you know, give me a holler if you have any questions or, uh, Mr. Young, if you have any questions, you, you know, uh, they can call me as well so that they put me on. I'll just make sure I have my phone by my side just in case there are any questions. But, but they're, they're a terrific group of students. Everybody, just give me a holler if you need anything, okay? All right, sounds good. good. Okay, sounds good. and uh, if uh, you will let them give me your uh, phone number, I will yeah. I will evaluate each one of them, and I will even grade them for them. <laughs> and I will not uh, use it. Well, you know, it's, 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 you know, I like to remind the students that, that, that this, in fact, is a class. Uh, <laughs> so the, the most important thing, and, and I've said this uh, uh, on more than one occasion, is that I want them to learn something, you know? I'd like them to come away from the class with the uh, feeling that they, they got something out of the experience. They learned to to um, be good journalists and to do things uh, the right way. Right. So, uh, but, but give me a holler, please. And yes, uh, Sam, could you give him my phone number just in case? Yep, I can do that. And I will not, right. grade, I will not grade him on a curve, so <laughs> I'll keep him straight. All right, Have a good day. All 
Jimmy Yon believes Ziegler belongs behind bars. On his front porch, he shows the students a scrapbook he's created with all of the big news clippings about the case. 40 years later, he's still proud of his police work on Christmas Eve, 1975. He walks the students through his account with meticulous detail. I was on routine patrol and the dispatcher said send a car to Ziegler's Furniture Store that uh, a disturbance had happened there. Uh, and I went, I was only about 200 yards away from the store at the mm. time, uh, sitting in front of the Winter Garden Inn. So as we arrived at the store, there was three cars. They were uh, Winter Garden Police Chief, Donald Fickey, uh, Oakland Police Chief, Bobby Thompson, and myself basically entered the driveway at the same time. I went to the back of the store to a gate. It has a chain link fence, security fence around the back of the building. Uh, Chief Fickey and Chief Thompson went to the front of the building. The building was dark inside as I pulled in. So I went to um, the northwest corner of the building. That's where the fence started. I heard uh, tires squealing and a car leaving the front of the store. So I, when I looked back, it was uh, Chief Thompson, and he was going south towards the hospital. Uh, so I went back to the front of the store. The police chief was in front of the store. He said Tommy had been shot, and Thompson was taken into the hospital. Anyway, eventually we went in the store, and uh, there were four bodies found in the store that were dead. And at that time, we had not identified Mrs. Ziegler. I didn't know what she looked like. Curtis Dunaway, a store employee and family friend of the Ziegler's, was called in to identify the bodies. I was surprised when I saw Mr. Edwards, Ms. Edwards, and I was shocked when I found Eunice. She was the last person they brought me to, to uh, identify. I, I was really, it really hit me hard because Eunice was a good person. She was a so, she should do anything in the world for you. So it, 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 was, it was an experience I don't ever want to go through again. And, I, and you may think I'm a silly old man but every once in a while, even now, it bugs me. When I come in this house at night and no lights are on, I go through every damn room before I go upstairs and go to bed because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid and I don't know what I'm afraid of. 40 years have passed, but the world as Tommy Ziegler knows it is frozen in 1975. No cell phones, no internet, no email. Will, Kayla, and Sen traveled two and a half hours north to meet him on death row. I guess to start off with, um, what's it been like living here for the past 40 years? 
different. I had never even been in a jail before, so uh, yeah, it's different. <laughs> My day is I get up about a quarter to four every morning. I um, uh, do my Bible studies and um, take a shower, or not really a shower, just a sponge bath because we don't have a shower in the cells, and I wait for breakfast, and then I do exercise after breakfast. And then I open my day up with reading and writing and, and so forth. Two days a week we go to the yard, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. Uh, we have a shower um, three nights a week. That's it. This has been Tommy Ziegler's daily routine for the past 40 years. When I first got to Florida State Prison, um, death row, I was number 79 on death row. And um, we were a unit that was kept com completely away from everybody else. Here at Union, um, it's, uh, this building is, is nothing but death row. And over at, at FSP, um, we were just uh, a wing uh, of the entire prison. So we were mixed with the uh, regular people that were there. Tommy Ziegler has been on death row since his sentencing hearing in 1976. He has received two death warrants and two stays of execution, one in 1982 and the other in 1986. Well, the first death warrant was in, in 82, like you said, and uh, it didn't come as a shock. But the second death warrant in 1986 was different. I mean, it came as a very big shock to me. I was out on the yard when the lieutenant came to get me. And um, I knew what it was because they don't send a lieutenant for you unless it's something that's pretty good. And um, when it did, when I saw him, I knew what it was. But I couldn't understand why. And then, of course, when they read the warrant to me, I understood I was in procedural default on everything. And what was that like to go from, you know, serve a death warrant to stay an execution year, you're not going to get killed? What is that like to go from one extreme to the other and kind of be living in that in balance between the two? I don't get excited. Number one, what it's going to be is going to be. What God's will is, is going to be. And there's no sense in worrying about something that you can't have any control over. And I know that I didn't commit these murders. And God knows I didn't commit these murders. And the evidence shows I didn't commit them. And if, if he wants me dead, he's going to let the state kill me. If not, I'm not going to die. And that's just the way I've taken this, and I live it day by day that same way. It's been that way for the last 40 years. Today, the death penalty in Florida is under review. On January 12, 2016, in the case of Hearst versus Florida, the U.S. Supreme Court found Florida's sentencing process unconstitutional because a jury, not a judge, must sentence an individual to death and provide reasoning for why capital punishment is appropriate in that case. Previously in Florida, juries could recommend a life sentence, but the judge could choose death, which is what happened in Ziegler's case. 
Now that the Supreme Court decision overturned Hearst's death sentence, the Florida Supreme Court has to decide what comes next. Does Hearst get a new sentencing hearing? Is his sentence reduced to life without parole? What are the implications for the almost 400 other inmates on death row, including Ziegler? Many inmates are hopeful for the opportunity to appeal on the same grounds as Hearst. Tommy Ziegler is focused on something else. I don't want to be let go. I want that new trial. I want those 12 members of that jury to stand up and say not guilty. For now, Ziegler and his defense team are seeking the court's permission to use newer DNA testing of evidence, which they hope will prove his innocence. The state attorney in Orange Osceola, 9th Judicial, uh, was the first state attorney in the United States to use DNA in a criminal case in Florida, in the United States. And a friend sent me uh, the article from the Orlando Sentinel on it. And when I read it, <laughs> I um, set it down, I made a cup of coffee, and I read it again. And then I read it for the third time. And when I finished it that third time, I said, uh-huh, if this will convict a man, it will also free a man. And I wrote to, to both Vernon and Terry and told them that I wanted everything they could find on DNA to send it to me. And I wanted DNA testing. And this was in December of 87. And um, we started then. And believe me, I became a DNA expert. <laughs> and um, we finally got the, the um, DNA testing ordered in 2000. From 87 to 2000, we fought it. We finally got it. We finally got the DNA test back in 2002. And uh, we made a mistake. We did all of our testing uh, according to uh, what the state's trial theory was. And the state's trial theory was that all the blood that was under my left armpit belonged to my father-in-law. And the state attorney had said, I held him in a headlock and I beat him to death. And this was why we did that. And back in those days, uh, one DNA test was $1,500. And there were several of them there. So we were looking at expense. Anyway, when that came back, of course, none of my father-in-law's blood's on me. So the question is, how did I beat this man to death? We filed for more DNA testing in the state fought us on it, saying that we had had the first bite at the apple, we couldn't have two bites. And we were in procedural default. So we have gone all this time from 2004 to 2016 when we filed again. And that's what this March 31st hearing was all about. The new um, form of DNA that's out there is a lot more sensitive and a lot more complicated now than the original DNA was. According to um, the new DNA, if I touch you or you touch me, your DNA shows up on me. It doesn't have to be fluids, it's just touch, period. And after a lot of different appeals over the years, um, do you feel that this is just another step in the state is still fighting you and you're not feeling optimistic? Or do you feel like this could be among the case changes? This is definitely going to be the changer. There's no doubt about that. You mentioned all the appeals. 
This case has never been appealed on the entire in entirety of the evidence. We would get a piece of evidence here and we would have to file an appeal on it because of the time limit that was involved in it. We would get another piece and have to file another appeal so the time limit wouldn't run out on it and we wouldn't be put in procedural default. The accumulation of all of the evidence has never been heard in this case. It's all been piecemeal. And there has never been a piece that was big enough to overturn. They, the state has never allowed us to have the accumulative effect of all the new evidence that's involved in it. This is the thing that we're going for now along with the, the new DNA that's out there. The Medill Justice Project aims to do just that, to compile as much evidence about what happened that night in one place, one article, to try to provide a more complete narrative of Christmas Eve 1975, of Tommy Ziegler and his wife and in-laws, of Charlie Mays, Felton Thomas, and Edward Williams, of the Roaches and their four-second account, of the implications of Ziegler's bullet wound. Together, the students at the Middle Justice Project aim to discover the truth.